0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tina Fey and Robert Carlock came up with the idea of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with Ellie Kemper in mind.
2: When they did present the premise to me that I was to play a cult victim who recently escaped and was making a new go of it, In New York, I wasn't sure if they were serious. And because they are so smart, I thought this might be a test to see if I'm a dumb actor, if I'm like a (laughs) naive actor. I I don't know if they're being honest about about what the premise is because it, you know, it's going to be on NBC. It sounded very dark.
1: It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Ellie Kemper. She'll tell me about moving to New York to pursue a career in comedy and drawing on the ridiculous privilege of her own college alum Listserv for some of her earliest material.
2: I don't want to be a traitor, but the questions that would go around, it was like, this is embarrassing. And if, like, the government gets a hold of this, you are absolutely, like, fulfilling every stereotype out there. (laughs)
1: Later, I'll sit down with Glenn Weldon. Glenn co-hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. In his new book, he charts the evolution of Batman through comics, TV, and film, and asks what that meant for nerd culture. Like the introduction of Robin as Batman's
0: sidekick. He almost single-handedly doubled the sales of the comics because there were kids who wanted to be Batman, and there were kids who wanted to hang out with Batman. And the addition of Robin served them both. He also explains the special significance those
1: comics had for a gay kid like himself. Plus, I'll tell you about the MC who felt kind of like every 90s hip-hop kid's older brother. And it's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has a pretty unusual premise. A woman emerges from a Midwestern bunker. She's been held captive there by a cultish kidnapper. She and her fellow captives are national news, so she moves to New York, the one place she can think of where no one will care. It's a pretty strange, dark idea to make into a sitcom, but it's also one of the funniest shows on TV. One of the big reasons is Ellie Kemper, who plays Kimmy. She's so unbelievably sunny in the face of any obstacle that she can sell any joke, and Unbreakable has some pretty crazy jokes. Here she is as Kimmy Schmidt, confronting her flatmate Titus about the way he treated his ex-wife. Titus speaks first.
0: Pizza party for one. Divorced, dead, and having some fun. Pizza party for one. I don't have pizza. What's wrong, Kim Blake Nelson?
2: I don't know, Titus. What is wrong? And what's right? And what's just... Ehh. I find that life is mostly gray areas, especially the parts I can't reach with moisturizer. Uh-huh. Is that why you thought it was okay to be so mean to Vonda?
0: I don't know what you're referring to, because in the movie I saw, I was a hero scoring a legal victory for young renegades everywhere. You couldn't even apologize to her. There are three things Titus Andromedon does not do. Apologies, drag, and calculus.
2: I'm beginning to think maybe you were a better person back when you were Ronald Wilkerson. Well, we'll never know, because Ronald Wilkerson's dead. Oh, you are just Mr. Sassafras Jeans
0: today. That's a dumb name for how fierce I'm being right now. The
1: second season of the show is out this week on Netflix. Ellie Kemper, it's so great to have you on Bullseye. I'm such a fan of your show.
2: It is so great to be here, Jesse. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours.
1: That's probably not true, but I appreciate your (laughs) graciousness. It's true. Um, So what is it like to know that your on-screen talents inspired these brilliant comedy writers, uh, Tina Fey and Robert Carlock? to write the most brutal, nightmarish version <laughs> of a fish-out-of-water story ever.
2: What it reads in my face that suggests bunker victim, I don't <laughs> know. I, maybe they saw something I don't you know, readily recognize. The writers had an idea for a show, which was that I was to play a cult victim who recently escaped and was making a new go of it. In New York, I wasn't sure if they were serious, and because they are so smart, I thought, this might be a test to see if I'm a dumb actor, if I'm, like, a <laughs> naive actor. I, I don't know if they're being honest about, about what the premise is because, you know, it's going to be on NBC. It sounded very dark. Um,
1: I like your idea that you can't quite tell uh, whether they're too smart for you. <laughs> As a graduate of Princeton University who d- did some, but I don't think completed graduate work at Oxford, did I think you're qualified. I think you're qualified to determine whether or not they're putting you on.
2: That is kind of you. I, I'm, I'm going to replay that in my mind the next time I'm questioning my own intelligence. <laughs> but these guys had just written 30 Rock and had, uh, you know, pulled that off seemingly. Effortlessly, and 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 knew a lot more about creating a television show than I did, and I just, you know, at first blush, I do think that does not seem.
1: No, it seems like a terrible idea. Well,
2: just certainly for a network show. Yeah, so how, was, how are they going to? It's supposed off? to
1: be on NBC.
2: Absolutely, and so I, I, you know, once I read the pilot, I saw how they were able to make that very dark premise into a comedy in a way that I think only Tina and Robert could. I think, in the wrong hands. It would have turned out very differently and probably terribly. Um, so thank goodness that they were the ones at the helm. And um, I don't know how they did that. I think it's by focusing on what happens, you know, after the the darkness, I guess, without being too dramatic about it. But, yeah, I I, I wasn't sure what to do at first. And I don't know what – what is it? You You're looking at my face. Is there something – is it is – it, it's large? I don't, It's seen a lot? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think
1: what – I'll tell you, you were already on uh, – you had been on The Office mm-hmm. um, and done a wonderful job and done lots of things that, you know, folks in the comedy community knew you from. You're exceedingly uh, gracious and pleasant. Um, and I think they must have just wondered uh, what is wrong with this woman. <laughs> You
2: know yeah. what I mean? But like
1: that was the inciting question for that.
2: Possibly, yes. And and to be clear, I am not always exceedingly gracious. So so say. so thank you for saying that. No, but but obviously that is uh um I've I've played a lot of characters I think who are upbeat, uh naive, cheerful.
1: Are you ever like a jerk?
2: I don't think so. And especially if I'm tempted to be a jerk now, I feel like um, what if that person has seen the show and then you'll be embarrassed 10 times as much. So I, I, I completely admit that that's a very vain reason not to get mad, but it works, so.
1: What about a pat- weird, passive-aggressive Midwestern jerk?
2: Oh, with a smile, you mean?
1: Yeah, like a secret jerk.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think, <laughs> I think that happens all the time.
1: She said with a lovely smile. Smile,
2: yeah. Well, yeah, because that... that uh, yeah, I think you can get away with that in a way that's satisfying to you, but not <laughs> the other person isn't, you know, totally aware. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: I've heard you say that you would be, uh, you would be delighted to move back to St. Louis at some point in your life. I think we've just learned why. <laughs> you, you <laughs> I want... can be
2: the biggest. <laughs> be I, no, but I yeah, and just go around laying my little passive aggressive snark. <laughs> on anyone who crosses my path and feels so I go to bed at night just feeling s- satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> ah. No, I I I don't think I'm I hope, well, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I can be a jerk. I mean, right? One of the
1: things that one of the things that uh is so lovely about the character is that, you know, in any fish out of water comedy like this is is to some extent about the tenacity of uh, the protagonist, you know, in this situation that they don't know and they don't control and, you know, that they they can still be good and uh, win our hearts or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's such an absurd show, but there are these moments where she narrows her eyes, you know?
2: Yeah. I love that about Kimmy because I think – I think what's impressive about and not to sound too actory, but I am an actor, so I'm going to sometimes sound actory. I think that uh, that's my favorite part about her is that she is undeniably girly. And I mean, you can just at first glance, I mean, she wears bright pink colors. She, you know, has long hair. She likes jewelry. She's a girly girl. And without contradiction, she's also this incredibly resilient Woman, sort of of steel. And so I, I I think that is what carried her through such a horrific time, which is, and I don't know if that's something you can acquire or if it's just innate, but she is, uh, she has a tenacity, I think, that is unmatched. And so I, I sort of love it when the story calls for some sort of injustice or unfairness that Kimmy witnesses because she has no tolerance for it. And she fights, she fights for it, sometimes to a fault. But um she isn't pushed around. And I think you see that in the flashbacks to The Bunker even. As as funny as they can sometimes be, there is a toughness there and an unwillingness to sort of accept what has been thrust upon her that she's fighting through.
1: What was it like for you when you moved to New York after school? Was because it? you didn't go to Oxford with the idea that you were going to be a comedian.
2: Well, no, I didn't. And in retrospect, I almost wish I had gone straight to New York after college to start taking improv classes and doing stuff there. Because I think I I went to an, complete another year of school thinking, I'm not exactly sure what it is that I want to do, so I'll keep going to school. And then um, I think things sort of clarified in my brain over that year. So when I came to New York, you know, I grew up in St. Louis. I think any move to New York is going to be a little jarring, just because I don't think there's any other city like it. In the United States, and um,
1: in your case particularly, because there's no Provel cheese on the <laughs> pizza.
2: Oh yes, you know Provel. <laughs> is that what is Provel? It's I don't Provolone. know. It's like
1: cheese. It's a cheese goo.
2: It's a cheese goo, but it's very tasty, and I, I will defend Provel to the end. So, so I'm on record saying that. But yeah, there was no Provel to be found in New York, and I do not remember feeling worried or scared. And I think that's because my parents were very supportive of this idea to go to New York. My dad, I remember saying, you should try it for a few months. And and anyone out there who has tried acting or any art for pursuing any art for a few months knows that it takes (laughs) much longer than a few months. But Nonetheless, they, it's not like they discouraged me from doing this. And I.
1: He just suggested a, f- a few months acting, a few months banking, and see which one you choose. <laughs> yes.
2: Just weigh, weigh them both, see what a comes out. A few
1: months monging a fish.
2: Few, <laughs> try it all. Yeah. Ellie, you're young. Yeah. Get out there. Yeah. And so, uh, tossing pies, pizza right. dough. I don't know. It's sure. New York. New York. Tossing pizza tossing pies. Tossing yeah. some pizza pies. But also. I did feel and this is unusual. I felt very confident in my ability to do improv. So because I had been a member of my improv group in college, like probably a lot of us all were members of improv groups in college. And I did feel like, okay, well, I know I can improvise and I'm there was no long term plan. I don't think it was like I want to get on a sitcom. I want to be a leading lady in movies or I want to. Go on to direct things. There was nothing that thought out. It was more just like I'm going to enroll at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and the People's Improv Theater, take classes, and then try to get on a house team there. So no, I, do, I strangely only remember feeling excited and oh no, I you know what I think I'm watching it a little bit because I just my mind just flashed back to like a Thursday afternoon in my apartment, unemployed. And we just ordered Chinese food and in the middle of the day. It was so depressing. <laughs> Sorry. So I don't want to paint it like it was just so fun and I was excited. There were a lot. It's, it, you are a little, you feel a little aimless.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to the actor Ellie Kemper. She's the star of the hit Netflix show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which returns with a second season this week. I actually have a clip here of what might be called one of your first films. <gasps> um, it's called Man Under the Stairs.
2: Yes! I'm so happy you have this.
1: I <laughs> love you, this. Can you give us a little context for uh, this?
2: Yes. Um my parents were doing construction in their house namely on the stairs and they were they were <laughs> fixing the stairs and so my my best friend and next-door neighbor Katie Purcell and my younger sister Carrie and I we had already been making videos as I'm sure a lot of people our age were and we decided to make a horror movie about a man who actually lived under the stairs. Carrie was to play that man. And um, that's the basic premise. He starts uh, sort of terrorizing us. Um, That's what the movie, that's what the film uh, is about.
1: Let's take a listen. (laughs) Okay.
2: Katie, what's wrong? I know you won't believe me, but I could have sworn I just saw a man
1: under the stairs.
2: (laughs) A man under the stairs? Give me a break. Too long. I'm serious. You have to believe me. Go see for yourself. Have you talked to mom about this? No, I just got up here. I just got home from school. A man under the stairs? Yes. I'll check it out. I remember thinking, this is your moment, Ellie. Do not mess this up. And I...
1: Mom's spaghetti. My, <laughs>
2: <laughs> you only got one shot. And I am overacting so bad. But, do you know, what? during all... We would put on a lot of plays and make a lot of videos like that. And I was always the director because I think I, I felt I'm a control freak. And I always was the only actor to ever... Mess up and and flub lines, but I but and I would kick myself. Well,
1: afterwards. I feel like between your filmmaking history yeah. and the fact that one of your high school theater teachers was John Hamm, it, yeah, you were pretty much destined for stardom. <laughs> yeah, too,
2: it was like they laid the roadmap before my you know my eyes, and I just had to take the car on the root Jesse
1: <laughs> I have some I have some friends who were uh friends with John Hamm, mm-hmm. and um he seems like a really delightful man yes. uh from from everything I've heard and yeah. seen um but I think I might be afraid to talk to him <laughs> because he's he's so even when he's being goofy which he's great at mm-hmm. uh I'm still kind of uncomfortable with how handsome he is
2: Oh you and me both my friend <laughs> And also, by the way, can you get out – even though I knew him, not to brag, but I knew him before he was Don Draper. Right. But even when I am looking at him as a person or as a different character or as – I guess those are the only two options. um, I see Don Draper. And Don Draper frightens me, to be honest. So I think that I'm with you on that. And in fact, when he was – so he played the reverend in in season one of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And – I was so nerve for any number of reasons. I was very, I, maybe I shouldn't use the word nervous. I was there was a lot of adrenaline in my body when we, the, especially the first day we filmed our scenes together, because not only did he used to be my teacher, I couldn't get out of my head that I'm acting in a scene with Don Draper, and the whole thing was exhilarating, intimidating, and um, now I sound like Johnny Cochran. <laughs> exhilarating, intimidating, <laughs> and uh, delightful. So it was a, it was very exciting day i guess
1: i can only imagine the intimidation i acted alongside i'm not trying to brag here yeah no don't i acted alongside no i'm going to
2: oh no no, you're not bragging
1: oh okay great (laughs) uh i acted alongside bob einstein aka super dave osborne once and i found that to be profoundly intimidating (laughs) i was like that's super dave
2: right there that's the thing i can't separate the person from the character
1: right even though you knew him as a like a twenty two year old or twenty three
0: year old, doesn't matter.
2: Night. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but but you are correct that he is delightful. He he is one of. Okay, so he is from St. Louis, and I think everyone there is just has crowned he, rightfully so the prince of St. Louis. He just everyone.
1: No, sorry, Sklar Brothers. Yeah,
2: sorry There's guys. There's a new. King in There's town. A new Ham King in town. And he uh and every Is that his <laughs> title? Yeah, Ham King. Is
1: it was that already the title before he became the Ham King? No, he Were was, the Squares the Ham King previously? Yeah, or Stan Musial the Sklar, in the yep, nineteen fifties yep. and
2: sixties? Yes, John Goodman briefly uh-huh. the Ham King. And uh but no, but then suddenly and and I guess very you know fortunately, John Ham became the ham king. Which right. <laughs> was like, oh well sure. a good fit.
1: Sure.
2: Um so uh yeah he...
1: Miss Piggy was the Ham King briefly, which fit in some ways, but less so in other uh, ways. More
2: tragically, yes. Yeah. People were a little upset. You know, there was some controversy right. over her title. But right. it, that's what it's called, the Ham King. Mm-hmm. So we can't help it if you right. are dubbed that.
1: <laughs> we're learning a lot about St. Louis. It's
2: ver- between the Prevelle and the Ham King,
1: there's a I'm lot. I'm pretty much out of things I know about St. Louis. Cardinals. <laughs> I already said Stan Musial. Oh, you said that. <laughs> you yes, already you got Stan I already
2: got that. Okay, St. Louis Blues.
1: I've been in the... Gateway Arch.
2: Oh, you! What did you? I went you in the scared? elevator. I was terrified. Now, see that I? Why are you? Claustrophobic? I'm
1: afraid of heights. Yeah,
2: and the elevator there is rickety. Up,
1: but um. I will say that the uh, the Gateway Arch, I have very strong positive feelings for. I feel like, along with the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. it's uh, one of America's uh, man-made monuments that really delivers. I just oh. think it's amazing. Oh,
2: I, I am thrilled to hear you say that because I feel the same way. Whenever I'm flying home to St. Louis, and you are flying over that, or Buy it. I think it's. I think it's gorgeous. I also highly recommend the uh, documentary about it, Monument to a Dream. It's really good. I've seen it several times, and you are at the edge of your seat, wondering: Are is this last slab going to fit? Because it's like the heat. It was a hot summer day, and the heat is contracting or expanding, or one of them. And it was like uh, not a certain thing that the arch was going to be completed. Anyway, it was completed. Even up in it. <laughs> Spoiler! But I'm sorry. Alert. Spoiler! They finished it <laughs> again. Ham King. The arch was briefly the Ham
1: King. <laughs> oh really? Yep. Yeah. Despite think... its lack of sentience.
2: Yep. <laughs> yes. That's how good. That's how. <laughs> was it able to complete its duties? Well, no. I think I think very quickly once they mm-hmm. realized. Um, oh well, you they know. They
1: tried to put it in the back of a convertible it, for. Right for Patrick's Day parade. Yep. And yeah. they're like, "Oh,
2: this isn't going to work." Sorry. Yeah. So, so then it went, you know, it went. The title was passed on, which is fine.
1: So, in a lot of ways for a St. and like yourself, mm-hmm. uh, Louisian, a St.
2: Louisian, St. Louisian.
1: Like as for a St. Louisian <laughs> like yourself, the Gateway Arch is bittersweet because on the one hand, it's a majestic monument. On the other hand, it really disappointed a Sam King.
2: <laughs> That's true. But I think you have to take the good with the bad, you know. I think it would be naive to think that the Gateway Arch could deliver on all fronts. You know, it is only a monument. That's true. So it's it's fallible.
1: I'll continue my conversation with Ellie Kemper after a break. We'll talk about class, wealth, and comedy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from the Black Tux, the new way to rent a tuxedo. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome modern suits. Far from the polyester mess you'll get at that mall rental stand. Select from complete looks or build your own. The suit will arrive seven days before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on. If the fit needs a tweak, the Black Tux will do whatever it takes to fix it in time. Shipping is free both ways. If you need to rent a suit or a tuxedo for an upcoming wedding or a special event, you don't have to do it the old-fashioned way. Visit theblacktux.com slash bullseye and experience a new way to rent. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. All this month, you can hear episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour a day early, exclusively in NPR One. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour stories from your local station and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ellie Kemper. She plays the title role in the Netflix original show, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Was there ever a point in your career where you felt pretty settled on the idea that you had made the wrong decision?
2: Oh, settled on the idea that I made the wrong decision. Um, Yes. Yes. I had just performed a one-person show at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York on 26th Street. And uh, I think like 10 people were in the audience, including my then-boyfriend, Michael. And so that's – no one laughed. It was horrible. It was silent throughout. And I had done the show before, and it had been fine. And for whatever reason, it was a horrible, horrible night. And it's, first of all, embarrassing to be on stage and try, trying to make people laugh, and then nobody laughs. So it's, it's doubly embarrassing when, like, your beloved is there. And you have made a fool of yourself in front of him. So I remember walking home with him, and I was just sobbing because I was so embarrassed, and I felt like I am not qualified to be doing any of this. And there's your evidence, and why am I even trying this? And I, I think first and foremost, I was just so embarrassed. And we went home and watched, um, I can't remember which Tracy Ullman show, something with Tracy Ullman, and I felt, and I, I felt like so much better. And I should have felt worse because it's like, oh well, you'll never be as good as Tracy Ullman. But I felt comforted thinking like, okay, I'm going to try to work harder and be more like that uh, rather than wallow in this shame. But I felt profoundly bad that night just feeling like you don't have the chops for this and this is mortifying. That's a bad feeling to be that embarrassed. And then someone wrote about it. This is back when like blogs were just beginning, I think. And it was so vicious and mean and just – I think unnecessarily cruel. I don't know. It was one of the 10 people in that audience felt the need to go home and, and write a horrific review. Very, very, again, very cruel. So that that felt bad. <laughs> See, I laughed again. <laughs> but that felt very bad.
1: Do you think that that review is still on the internet?
2: <laughs> it might be. We would have to look hard for it. But I think, why would it be erased? Right. Yeah. And in those moments, you always want to respond to it. Like, well, you tried doing what I did, but you can't respond to that stuff. Well, you're only going to get yourself deeper. Oh. Right? Do you think Michael wrote it? <laughs> <laughs> is, is he hiding behind a potted plant in Well, your- I mean,
1: you haven't answered the question why he wasn't laughing.
2: <laughs> I didn't answer... I, I really do... Um, I don't fault him for this. I think if you're the only one laughing in an audience... Not only is it distracting, it draws more attention. It almost would be seen as a pity laugh. But I guess it does beg the question, well, why Why is this a question? Why was not he just naturally laughing? But I'll tell you why. He had seen it before. All right. There's no good answer. He should have been laughing. He should have been laughing hard. He, is, he will be paying for that for the rest of his days.
1: I'm so sorry that I appear to have driven the two of you to divorce. It's okay.
2: I'll move back to St. Louis. It'll be fine. <laughs>
1: I read a great piece that you wrote uh, years and years ago from McSweeney's, the premise of which was this private school alumni uh, (laughs) email newsletter or email – what do you call that? Email group. Yeah, like an – Email list. Mm -hmm. uh, Emailing about where to find a good maid in Manhattan. Yeah. um, That, uh, you know, spirals into the kind of privilege insanity that you would expect. And, um, you know, that's one of the big – subject matters on Kimmy Schmidt, too, Mm -hmm. that Jane Krakowski's character is constantly managing her perception Mm -hmm. as a rich person, and uh, your character is uh, just thinks it's amazing that everyone has their own bed or something, you know? Right. (laughs) And um, uh, I wonder if your experience both being a... Uh, growing up in a banking family <laughs> and also like going to Princeton, where like some of the people that you knew in New York when you moved to New York were other people that were like 24 year olds that wore suspenders, <laughs> not hipster <laughs> suspenders, like banker suspenders yes. and ties, you know, yes. like loosened yes. ties out at. But you see these people in New York, they don't exist in other places. No, I don't think, only but, New like, York. Yeah, but like these like young guys that work in finance that like loosen their tie and yes. go to a bar. Yes. If that made you kind of extra sensitive to those those kind of tensions and differences,
2: yeah, I think that that's um of course you let me be let me be thoughtful about this answer i think first of all that McSweeney's piece was inspired by our actual princeton listserv which <laughs> which I didn't really have to even make up anything because i i I sort of was, and this is genuine, I was just sort of like shocked by the the <laughs> I don't want to be a traitor. But the questions that would go around, it was like, you. this is embarrassing. And if, like, the government gets a hold of this, you, you are absolutely, like, fulfilling every stereotype out there. Government. So government they, office they're the first On class NSA. and wealth. Yep, they're going straight in. What are those jerks riding about? If,
1: if Bernie gets elected, we're in trouble.
2: <laughs> watch out. They can still unearth those emails. I mean, they're you know they're, they haven't gone anywhere. So watch out, all you privileged people out there. But I think that um, of course everyone is born into whatever circumstances they're born into, and uh, I have been given a tremendous amount of uh, good fortune in my life, and so I feel like uh all the more reason to um there is all the more reason i think to uh work hard and be grateful because uh I sort of had a leg up i i did i hope that's not i i don't mean to sound um smug it's just sort of the truth so i'm acknowledging that but i do think the the way you conduct yourself of course is that much more important. I don't know if it's that much more important. Everyone should conduct himself well. But I think um, being able to uh, keep a – I don't know, a grounded uh, view of it all in a a way that's where you recognize, okay, not – you may have had advantages that other people didn't have. You may have had certain privileges other people didn't have. But just to, uh, I don't know, experience the world enough, read enough, watch enough that you do have an understanding of how the world works –
1: I feel like I've led you into a minefield here. I'm feeling bad about it because I think you're so great.
2: No. I just
1: want you to know that.
2: (laughs) No, absolutely not. I just want to be careful with my word choice. My gosh. I can't have people writing in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they'll write in. (laughs) They'll write in. 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 You don't have to be worried about that.
2: That blogger blogger is going to come forward, first of all, and be like, I didn't even know she came from a banking family and her one-person show was smut. Oh, boy. (laughs) He's going to resurrect that
1: guy. Um when before before we came in here we talked about how deeply I feel about a couple of jokes from yes. uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which is a show that has by far the best jokes on television and I I'm sure that you are a joke aficionado are there any are there any little things that have kind of that you're still holding in your heart
2: This is the terrible thing that happens with me with this show is because it is so dense and so chock full of jokes that instead of Titus Burgess and I were just talking about this, thinking about the last season where we're like, what happened? Like it all seems like a haze now. and We don't know until we watch the show again what happened. But I think that there's <laughs> – do you know it took me <laughs> more than – this is bad, it, than it, longer than it should have – when Jacqueline in season one says, um, at 10 a.m., then come get me up, but don't wake me up. And I, I was like I, – I finally said, wait, Jane, are you – like, I don't understand that. Are you supposed to be unconscious? What? She's like, no, I think I'm just getting ready when I'm still asleep. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I got that now. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's too many zingers. They're, they're joke machines. <laughs> and I also, as I mentioned to you before that – I don't always get the jokes and I sometimes I Google them, and I no, I, I really am not that dumb I mean a, a, on occasion I have to Google a reference and sometimes even Google's
1: special Ivy League Google Yes
2: Ivy League Google yep that I signed <laughs> I got it from the listserv.
1: Uh-huh.
2: the government's going to find out about it soon all right so it's right. days are number don't worry <laughs> but sometimes Google doesn't even know and I'm like, okay, well now I don't feel as dumb like I, I can't catch the reference if Google do not know then i I do not feel as bad. <laughs>
1: Ellie Kemper, I am, I am so grateful that you, that you came in to be on the program. Uh, what a joy to get to talk to you. And uh, congratulations on this show, which is just so funny.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I feel the exact same way, and I feel very grateful to you for having me on it. So thank you, Jesse. This was a lovely chat.
1: She said with a smile. <laughs> Ellie Kemper. Stabbing you. <laughs> Ellie Kemper is the star of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, the second season starts this week on Netflix. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Who is Batman? Is he the ultimate badass, a criminal-pummeling avatar of pure revenge? Is he a genial dad, a friendly scout leader in tights? Is he an armored mechanical soldier, a gothic nightmare flitting through the night, just an avatar for nerd rage? Glenn Weldon's new book considers all the Batmans, or possibly all the Batmen I'm not sure which one is right. It's called The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Glenn is one of the hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast and also the author of a book about Superman. Glenn, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show.
0: Oh, thanks, man. It's always great to be here. So uh, which one do you like better, Batman or Superman? Superman. Uh, when I was a kid, I would put a parka over my head and uh, just the parka part, and then le- let the sleeves and the Actual coat just kind of flap behind me, and I'd uh, run around the backyard with my friend David Goretzka and we'd be Batman and Robin, and we'd pow and we'd zap, and uh, we would quote lines from the six reruns of the '66 show that we did not understand, and uh, and I can remember there was one line, there was one line that was like, it was a riddle, uh, what, how is, oh, uh, how is the Statue of Liberty like a woman scorned because they both carry a torch, and this was magic to us. We had no idea what the hell it meant, but we had committed it to memory because the power of that show was so strong wait did you get to be batman or robin oh i was batman jesse oh congratulations let's be clear clear. i was i was always a second tier go bot no no no, i i in in life right now i'm a pretty good second in command but uh, back then when i was five i was batman so what
1: do you think when you were a kid, and I'm guessing based on uh, having known you in real life, this was probably sometime in like the 70s, mm-hmm. what was it about Batman that you knew and what was it about Batman that you liked?
0: Uh, Well, it was the television show. It was reruns of the television show, which, if you're a kid, has a very primal, simple appeal, because of those pop art colors and the pow and the zap and these fights that take place in these candy-colored warehouses. Uh, It's all very simple and straightforward, because they had just taken the comics of the time, the 1964-65 comics of the time, and just slapped them on screen. And they just made it very serious, which made it uh, perfect for kids, but also very funny to adults, because they invested it with all this gravitas, all this weight, which, of course, was the joke. Uh, but the thing that happens to us nerds in between uh, our kidhood and our adulthood is that we start to resent the hell out of that show because it doesn't take Batman seriously. Which is ironic because the whole point of the show was to take the comics, which again were considered junk culture at the time, absolutely seriously. But, uh, you know, the show came about because the pop art movement was so huge. The pop art movement valued things that were colorful, slick, mass-produced, cheap, uh, and like comic books. So it kind of rode that wave and became a huge sensation. And that sensation lasted because they produced three seasons' worth of episodes in two years, uh, well into the 70s and even into the 80s. When you were a kid, did you think that the uh, 1960s Batman TV show was funny? Uh no, no, no it was deadly serious uh, again I I, I I took it as gospel, but that 's that 's the whole thing um, the when you 're a kid, it has a very primal, very simple appeal It is not funny. you, you do this thing where you turn around and you see your parents giggling. And, uh, and you resent them. But that's, that's kind of the thing. Ultimately, nerds desperately want the acceptance of the mainstream. And once we get it, we don't know what the hell to do with it. And we start to resent the mainstream. Um, so that's why, you know, this book is really about how we got to where we are now. I'm using Batman as a lens to look at how nerd culture became culture. Because I think in the wake of the Batman television series... Uh, The people who read the comics resented the hell out of the Batman television series. And the makers of the comics wanted to do something else. They wanted to, all of a sudden, they wanted to invest the character of Batman with a personality because other comic book heroes had them all of a sudden. Uh, They were flirting with things that were not so much childhood wish fulfillment. You know, I can fly far. I can, I'm the strongest. I can lift things. Uh, But adolescent wish fulfillment. I'll get the girl. uh, I'll be accepted. People will love me. And so they needed they needed a character c- to kind of deal with that. And that's what they asked Batman to do by making him an obsessive, by making him someone driven by his uh, oath to stop crime, capital C. And uh, that obsession was something that resonated with the audience uh, of the time because now all of a sudden the audience for comics, which was still very small, was uh, teens and adults, not young kids. I want to get
1: into... Um, something that you just alluded to, which is that this Batman TV show came out in the mid uh, mid to late 1960s. And Batman had by that time existed for a few decades. How were the characters that were being created for especially Marvel comic books, characters like the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man uh, in the 1960s, different from the characters like Batman and Superman that had been
0: created in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Well, say what you will about uh, Stanley, and there's lots to say about him, who was the the main storyteller, uh, more or less, at Marvel. He and Steve Ditko and and Jack Kirby identified a market. They recognized that their audience was no longer young kids. It was teens and adults. And so they created a character uh, like Spider-Man, who uh, was wrecked with guilt. They created a character like the Thing, who was a creature of pure shame. And they created the Hulk, who was Rage. And they created the X-Men, who just wanted to fit in. Uh, And that had a resonance. All of a sudden, these characters didn't have just personalities. Because up to this point, remember, you couldn't really tell one superhero from another, except by their costume. It's visual iconography. That's how you tell them apart. All of a sudden they invested these characters with actual personalities. They had them fight each other a lot. Uh, Because when you do that, Fiction Writing 101, you bring characters into conflict to delineate who they are, what they want. And that's exactly what they did. They just kind of bashed these these characters against each other. You couldn't do that over at DC because everybody in DC uh, comics were, were chums. They hung out together. They uh, went out to coffee together. They were they were best pals. And that's what changed in uh, 1970. Finally, the guy who rebooted Batman, uh, Denny O'Neill, had got his start at Marvel and he had done some of that over there and he brought that philosophy over to DC Comics and made Batman a brooding, intense loner who didn't get along with other folks and how to make comics in the Marvel way kind of leached over into DC as well. It
1: seems like adding Robin also emphasizes the adultness of Batman, especially if you compare him to those later heroes that we're talking about if you think about Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four who have these teenage love affairs and stuff uh while Batman is
0: basically taking care of a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were uh there was some discussion of course by because what you're doing when you're adding Robin is you are you are making him into a father figure. You, you, As I say, you're raising the stakes. But you're also, at the end of the day, throwing a young child in a Speedo into harm's way. You know, he's, you're throwing him at guys with guns. And there were several people at DC Comics who said, you know, this isn't the way we allay uh, parents' fears. But uh, it stuck. And the character became hugely popular. He almost single-handedly doubled the sales of the comics because there were kids who wanted to be Batman and there were kids who wanted to hang out with Batman. And uh, the, the addition of Robin uh, served them both. I'll finish my conversation
1: with Glenn Weldon after a break. We'll talk about nerd culture's evolution toward the mainstream and ask if unhappiness is still essential to the nerd experience. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR has a new podcast, Embedded, Each week, Embedded takes you to a new place out in the world searching for the people behind a headline. This week, host Kelly McEvers gets Embedded with biker gangs in Texas after a deadly shootout. She tries to figure out how it happened and who to trust. Listen and subscribe to Embedded now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app.
2: I'm Bits. And I'm Teresa. And we host the podcast One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting parenthood it turns out it is very difficult but we all get up every day and do it again it's like the sign says if you're going through hell keep going so join us each week as we strive for less judging and more laughing find us on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts when your children aren't around
1: it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is glenn weldon you might know him from the terrific NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. His new book is called The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. So, Glenn, I uh, I went to college and, and got a degree in American studies, and I did a lot of ethnic studies, and there's a lot of things about culture and, and race that I've given a lot of consideration to. Um, But there are other things that I have... Uh, given less consideration in my life. And a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago, uh, my colleague Guy Branum, who hosts our sister show Pop Rocket, made a sort of offhand remark about the fact that growing up gay in America, uh, you are prevented from having your own culture and thus are, you know, constitutionally inclined to to find representations of your story or parallels of your story in the stories of others, because simply, you know, up until the 60s and 70s, there were almost literally no representations of homosexuality uh, in American popular culture. And, um, you know, even today, uh, there are relatively few stories where uh, gay characters are central. I wonder how you see Batman as a, as a gay man um, and his sort of longtime relationship to, I would guess I would say, gay culture. You know, Batman's always been straight, but there have always been things about Batman uh, that are seen as gay. And I wonder when you first started thinking about that in your life and how you felt about it.
0: Uh, well, Wortham, uh, the guy Frederick Wortham, who led this crusade, as I said, he went in front of Congress and said these characters could make a kid think he's gay. And the point I make in the book is that he had a point. He just didn't realize what point he had. Uh, no straight kid is going to look at Batman and Robin and think, "What's going on with those uh, flowers in large vases in, in their house?" Boy, what's he doing w- waltzing around in a in a dressing gown? Uh, every gay kid is. Every gay kid is going <laughs> to think hey, what, they're going to look at a panel where uh, Bruce puts his hand on Dick's shoulder and read into it. Because exactly as you said, Jesse, we don't see representations of ourselves. So we, we, we actually see in cultural, in, especially in superhero comic books, we see a world where not only do we not see ourselves, but we, a world that explicitly says we don't exist. And so we create ourselves. We invest. We look deeper. And we make connections that are not intended. But whether or not they're intended uh, doesn't matter in the slightest. Because... Uh, superhero comics are, uh, as a visual medium, they have a lot of subtext because there's literally things that are happening underneath the text. We see body language, we see background detail in the panels that tell us something, that speak to us. And, you know, the fact that Batman has abs like the window on a chiclet's box also helps. That's a a thing that we certainly notice. And so, yeah, I noticed that kind of stuff. Um, There is one of the things that Joel Schumacher really turned up to 11 is that... Uh, superhero comics and gay porn both fetishize the jacked, really muscular male body. So if you take those two circles and you slap the Venn diagram together, right there is where a film like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin—it's uh, where they live. And fetishizing the the male body the way that he did in those films is 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 speaking is a dog whistle to uh, to to queer folk like me. Uh, and he did a, he did a service in a weird way. He gave us a Batman, who was a leather daddy, he gave us a Robin who was a rough trade uh, you know, tank top guy with an earring. He, it's out there. It's part of the deal. It's not intended by the original creators, but it can be turned up to 11 and made to actually where we see a very weird version of us. When
1: you describe the things that you saw as a kid in Batman that rang a bell for you—
0: because you were and are gay.
1: What were the things that
0: you saw? Well, there's uh, there's something to every superhero, which is this notion of a secret identity, of a thing you must hide, a thing you must protect at all costs. There is uh, the cloak of night, also a thing that has certain resonances with uh, gay folk. There is a homosocial friendship. There is this idea that you just hang out with your best pal all the time. Uh, nothing weird, just hanging out with your pal. And then there's finally, of course, of the fact that he's jacked. That helped. Uh, the fact that he has a great body, uh, it, 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 it's something that registered with me in a sort of preverbal, blunt way, but it registered in a very strong way. My guest on Bullseye is Glenn Weldon. His new book is called The
1: Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. So what does it even mean to be a nerd or to be a geek in your self-identity in a world where... All of Not only are all geeks and nerds connected to each other in a way that they couldn't be in even the 1980s and even to some extent the 1990s and early 2000s, but also the traditional avenues of geekdom, things like the Lord of the Rings and superheroes are the fattest middle of American and to some extent world popular culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the big question. Now that nerd culture has become culture, what happens to nerds? Where does that sense of uh, feeling oppressed go? And if that feeling of oppression goes away what are they? Uh, do nerds become jocks? Um, I mean, nerds, you know, we, we tend to, w- when we get the acceptance of the mainstream, we tend to create smaller petty fiefdoms and say, well, I yeah, I'm a, I am like uh, homebrewing, but I only like hoppy, bitter homebrewing. Like, that's, that's the way we get smaller and smaller and smaller. I'd like to think that we will create a generation of people who don't get shoved into lockers because they like X or Y, and uh, we'll create a healthier uh, fan base, a healthier Uh, people, a healthier culture. I I think it's a really deep resonance with
1: the experience of growing up a geek that there is this pain that comes from outside, you know, from the social structure Mm -hmm. when you're a kid and especially when you're like a young adolescent at, at the height. And the way that you describe this vision is really kind of lovely and it's also something that i can see you know you can see immediately the the other way to interpret that the the way that ignores the hopeful part <laughs> and it's uh becomes very lonely and sad
0: yeah, well that's that's a part of this character. I mean, for a long time, for thirty years of of this character's existence, that oath was backstory. It was a plot point. It was something that a lot of heroes had, something very like it. It was a box that you check to get him into the Cape already, just to get him into the Cape and adventuring. But again, in nineteen seventy, Denny O'Neill looked around and said, We need something to define this character, to make him unique, to set him apart. Because, you know, okay, so he's a nerd. Peter Parker's a nerd. That doesn't set him apart. Obsession is what's going to set this character apart. Uh, this drive, this loner obsession is what's going to uh, make him who he is. And it also just might uh, help a, a whole generation of nerds identify with him, accept him, and uh, have Glenn, have him... I mean, forgive me, forgive me for interrupting, but that loner part seems really
1: essential relative to Spider-Man or something like that, that... Batman's vision of self-improvement and making the world a better place, you know, doesn't really involve uh, finding a girlfriend or making a ton of friends. It involves doing push-ups in a cave, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, he is the idealization of Masculinity, as envisioned by 12-year-old boys who had their lunch money stolen a lot. Uh, he is jacked. He never loses a fight. He's laconic and gruff. And uh, he is he's, he's a dude who keeps a lot of toys in his basement. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's not great with people. The, these things have a, a very fundamental resonance. There is a loneliness there. It's no coincidence that when they decided to remake him and push the, the ghost of Adam West out of the comics for good they decided the first thing they did was they shipped robin off to college and made him again who he was for about 11 months in 1939-1940 a lone creature of the night who beat people up a lot that's that's who he who he is that's what the the hardcore fan base desperately wants to say is the only version is the true version and in fact you know this this guy this character exists has existed many times he has cycled through being a lone figure, then being a father figure, then being the leader of an extended family. He's cycled through being light and dark and light again. He's been around for 77 years, and he'll be around for 77 more in some way. And he will continue this cycle, and different aspects of him will speak to different people. That's just the way it is.
1: I've seen pictures of your book events the last few nights. And as we talk, you've just started doing a book tour for the book and they're full of people and i imagine those people when they hand you their book to sign or uh when they raise their hand to ask a question want to talk a little bit about what batman means to them what do you hear from people about what this you know what this kind of goofy guy in a cape with pointy ears means to somebody that is uh grown adult living a full life. What's the resonance of this character for these folks?
0: Uh, well, you know, he is uh, obsessed. I think they all, I think we all recognize something about that obsession. It's not necessarily a, a dark obsession in the cases. that Some of these folks are, uh, you know, they love knitting. They, they love <laughs> They love a host of things. Uh, We talk a lot about crazy ex-girlfriend because we're obsessed with crazy (laughs) ex-girlfriend. That obsession is, again, it's unalloyed. It's not ironic. It's something that is pure. And I think the purity of this character uh, and the selflessness of this character is something that we can aspire to be because, again, uh, he, he is put forward in front of us as somebody that we could become if we do lots and lots of sit-ups and uh, perfect our brains. Uh, he is not Superman. He is not an ideal that we always must strive to be and never attain. He is theoretically, at least, not practically, but theoretically, he's somebody that we could, uh, we could strive to be. And this notion of putting himself out there for other people is something that speaks to some people, and to some people they just love the fact that he's a badass. It depends. You get all <laughs> kinds of different people coming. And, uh, you know, they just want to see him uh, beat up Bane. That's the thing about this character. He's an ink blot. He's not a mirror.
1: Well, Glenn, I sure appreciate you taking the time to come be on the show. It's always fun to get to talk to you.
0: Thanks, Jesse. I had a great time.
1: Glenn Weldon's new book is called The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture, He's also one of the co-hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is a great show that I love. Uh, You can check out that show uh, at npr.org slash podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. Look, I'll tell you what. I, I don't want this to be or to become the memorial corner comes off kind of phony after a while, but man, when Fife Dog died, that was tough. When I was a teenager, I used to have this stereo that I'd carry around strapped to my bike sometimes, and Low End Theory, the Tribe Called Quest album, was always in there, always, with the volume turned all the way up. When my little brother got old enough, I don't know, maybe he was 10, I got him a Tribe tape for his little boombox. Something special. Yo, microphone check one, two. What is this? The five foot assassin with the rough neck business. I float like gravity, never had a cavity, got more rhymes than the one that's got family. No need to sweat our send yoke to gain some type of fame. No shame in my game, cause I always do the same. Now, look. Fife wasn't a super MC. He was a pretty ordinary MC in a lot of ways. But even though maybe it's a cliche to say it this way, Tribe wasn't Tribe without Fife Talk. Fife and Q Tip were friends since they were three, and you felt it on every record that they made together. Tip was and is a cool guy you know, kind of pretty and artsy. Fife was like your older brother in a baseball jersey, the one you'd do anything to hang out.
0: Let me flaunt the style I
1: think that the time's near, That we drop studs. There won't be no studs here Rappers play the dumb, dumb. Kind of on the space tip But when they hear the jam jam, They be on the dills Now I'm not fucking rock. rock I know the territory Go ahead and try, try. That's a different story Similar to Grim. Grim I could tell a better one All about a kid. kid Who couldn't rap and didn't run Fife was fun And he liked sports And he was always talking mess Just always He was your man here
0: we go, yo, here we go, yo. So what, so what's, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo, here we go, yo. So what, so what's, so what's the scenario? Ayo, Bo knows this. What? And Bo knows that. But Bo, Bo don't know Jack, because Bo can't rap. Well, what do you know? The dead dog is first up to bat. No batteries
1: included and no strings attached. No hoes barred, no time for move faking. Got to get to lose so I can bring home the bacon. Brothers front, they say the trap can't flow, but we've been known to do the impossible like Broadway jokes. Wife was sick for a long time. Maybe he's at peace now. Maybe he's off somewhere capping on some saints or whatever. I hope he knew that he was still reverberating through hip-hop 25 years after he made his debut. I know I'll remember him and his work for the rest of my life. Like an old friend. Because in a way, that's what he was. Then to top it off, Starks got ejected. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian Xporello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All of our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. This week, thanks to Melissa Marquis at NPR in D.C. for her engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious comedian Guy Branham. Pop Rocket, you can find it wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's just about it. Remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.